from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall. Sirius XM Business Radio Studios looking out onto Locust Walk on a close, warm, late August Wednesday morning. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew. The entire Wharton Moneyball team is here surrounding the table for a very special edition of Wharton Moneyball. This is a college football preview show. This is arguably my favorite show of the year. It's become a tradition around here the last three years or so. I've got Shane Jensen to my right. I've got Eric Bradlow to my left. Audie Weiner straight away. Faculty colleagues all here at Wharton and longtime collaborators on Wharton Moneyball. We also have, and we're going to get into this more momentarily, a guest co-host, again becoming a Wharton Moneyball tradition. Ty Hildenbrandt is down. Good morning, Ty. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you for the invite back. A- absolutely. We love having you. Ty is up in the Allentown, Bethlehem area, so that's an hour drive or something? Yeah, ish. ish. Depends on traffic. Today right. a little bit more. Depends but. on how that's right. Thank you. <laughs> so Ty's been with us. Ty is a, a longtime college football commentator, co-host of a very popular college football podcast called Solid Verbal. And Ty drops down here in late August, early September every year and helps us stay on the straight and narrow in college football. He knows more about college football than the rest of us put together. And so we have to have him in here so we are not saying stupid things for the next two hours. Mm. We- <laughs> in, a, in a break from our usual tradition. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Try to tighten things up a little bit. We, we also have a, a couple of guests. We're going to have them in the second hour. So instead of having guests come on at the bottom of this hour, we're going to do an hour of open lines, hour of open conversation here among us five. And then we're going to roll into guest segments with Maria Taylor of ESPN and Bruce Feldman of um, Fox Sports and The Athletic. So longtime football writer, Bruce Feldman. So we've got Maria Taylor and Bruce Feldman coming up in the next hour. Between now and then, we're open lines. You guys can join us, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two. 7866. You also email us, business radio at com, or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle there. It's a great way to reach out to us. Complain, comment, question, whatever you got. Give us over under suggestions at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests up there. Ty Hillenbrandt, for example, you can fall, follow his handle at Ty Hillenbrandt. No underscore, no nothing at Ty Hill. That's TY, by the way. Great name. Great college football name, Ty. Guys, before we get going, let's just take the temperature, not the actual temperature, because it's actually a little warm in here today, but your temperatures for college football, level of enthusiasm, and any particular team you're ex- or player you're ex- especially excited to watch in the next week, few days. And let's do this quick, but I, wanna, I just want to catch everyone's temperature real quick. Eric first. Well, I was going to ask Ty a question just to start, nah. even though that's my point. <laughs> no, my temperature is the following. I'm not that excited about college football because all of the odds say there's basically three teams that have a chance to win the national title. And I'm not that excited because, yeah, there'll be week-to-week upsets here and there, but I'm not that excited about a sport. I wasn't that excited about the NBA. I'm not excited about the NFL when only a couple teams win. I'm not that excited about college football if, again, if the preseason odds hold the way they are, which is a 90-something percent probability that it's going to be one of three teams. So you're looking at it the wrong way. 
what you should say and what I was going to say is that I'm excited to watch all but three teams play this year in college football, which leaves <laughs> exactly. about 127 to pick from. Exactly. Exactly. So, so even Stanford's going to be good? Come on. Stanford's not going to be good. Sorry. Audio. All right. So uh, what I'm excited about is always watch the teams that I w- watched when I was at the schools, which I think is many reasons why college football is so attractive because, because so many of us go to college or live near college teams and get excited about them. So I used to love going to Stanford football games. I, I don't appreciate when they're not good because I like to have a, a team to root for that's decent. Um, oh yeah, you're, you're 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 a bit of a front runner. Is that what you're <laughs> no, saying? Oh, absolutely. I don't have that much knowledge about college football. It's it is, it, and and of course I used to go to the 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 Yale Bowl to watch the Yale football games. Those were always not great football, but always exciting Stanford to go Yale, to. Stanford Yale, man. Stanford um, Yale. And so I I don't anticipate either of those teams to be too good. Although if we do want to turn our attention to Ivy League, I do have a few important I mean remarks I could make. So you can see why we brought Ty in today. This, it's beginning it's beginning to be clear why we brought Ty in today, Shane. I'm excited for the Texas Longhorns. Hey, look oh, at that. Oh, <laughs> kiss ass. Part of it is, is, is Kate's um, infectious enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is, is very infectious. Um, but also, it's, it's, you know, the one Texas, uh, it's the one college football team that I've, I've seen play. I saw them play down in, at the University of yeah, Texas yeah, Austin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. They were not very good the season I happened to watch them. Can't imagine. You, you, you had like a... 100% chance of that being the case in the last 10 years. Yes. So, but they seem to be awesome this year. Awesome. Are they? We're going to find out. Yeah. Gonna find out. That's, that's one of the things that I wanted to find out. I was going to say the annual tradition needs to be well, right. the rest of us asking Cade if Texas is back. <laughs> right. Because this is very quickly turning into a long-running joke in the college football know, world. Is yeah. Texas back? Different ways to construct that. Is Texas backer? More back? <laughs> however you want to phrase it. It's very well, much becoming one, nice, one nice thing is that even if you're not as excited as I am, there are four teams that make the college playoffs. So even if three are sort of locked, which as we know, Kate has told us over the years, Eric, you're way overestimating the teams that will actually make it. You probably don't oh, yeah. know exactly which three, but let's ignore That's that. Right. Maybe Texas is the fourth. There's no reason why it couldn't be a school like Texas making it in there. There's no reason, except Oklahoma's maybe standing in the <laughs> that, way. That, that would be the biggest reason, but so, beyond that, you're right. So, can so I Ty, interrupt? What are the three other than Alabama and Clemson? Is it Georgia or Oklahoma? Yeah, Georgia is okay. the big head and shoulders above everyone else in most people's estimation. Of course, I mean, that's the second team from the SEC, so it's a little complicated. Well, but same as the, Texas-Oklahoma. I mean, the people are looking at, you know, the Texas-Oklahoma battle that will... Yeah, so those are head and shoulder favorites in the Big 12. Iowa State nipping at their heels. But that we, we'll, let's get into some of these battles. Ty, you guys just did your live show. So this is a long-running podcast you have with Dan Rubenstein. What, are you like year 12 or something, year 11? Oh, gosh, I've lost count. Yeah, it's that's probably not a double, good thing. Double no. digits. Yeah, we, we started back in 2008. The show's called The Solid Verbal. You can subscribe, solidverbal.com. Go to the website if you're interested in more information. But, yeah, we're a year-round college football podcast. We'll be doing three shows a week this year three, for the first stepping time. Stepping it up. Stepping it up. The, the the theory behind that is Sundays we're going to recap games. Thursday morning, early morning in time for the commute, we'll be previewing games. And then in between the two on like a Tuesday morning, we're going to try and make sense of it all because often we can't. We, we just don't have time to do that right. when we preview and review so much. So, right, right, yeah. right. So that's turning into full time job, Ty. I mean, this is good. this is moving it's up. It's turning. It's been for a long time, but we're we're, we're trying to go the extra mile to supply good. the college football content. Well, you guys just did some live shows. You did a live show maybe a week and a half ago in in Dallas, and then popped up and did one in D.C. But I noticed that you you made the very wise decision of traveling from the Northeast to Dallas via. Austin. You spent Friday night and Saturday morning in Austin. You had a ties, tacos with Thai 
event that I did on not Saturday come up morning. with that. Yeah, my my co-host Dan did, but yes. So I had the breakfast tacos in Austin, dude. Good, good. The, the, Went the, to a okay. place called uh, Pueblo Viejo, uh-huh. which I'm not sure if you're familiar, but it's uh, it's uh, East Austin, right? Uh, I do not know which side of Austin, <laughs> okay. All right. but the tacos were, were outstanding, and we had a chance to meet up with a bunch of listeners while we were there. Very hot, though. It's a little warm down there. This is an advantage for Texas teams if they, have to, if they get an out of, a, 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 a team from the Northeast has to go down there and play in late August, early September. So listen, to start us off, you've got a couple of allegiances, longtime fan of Notre Dame and Penn State, neither in the top tier of prospects this year, but both probably in the second tier. So what are your, what are your assessments of your teams just as a starting place? Well, I, I think, I think the, the read on Notre Dame is actually quite easy because there are three games, three really big games, road games against Stanford, against Georgia and um, against like USC late in the year. They, all road. Oh, yeah. Don't, all don't, road. Don't you have, oh, you have Michigan, but you have oh, Michigan. I'm sorry. Yeah. Michigan. Um, that it runs through basically three games um, and this season to see how Notre Dame ends up faring and how those three games go. I think will determine, you know, what we're saying six months from now. Ty, couldn't Notre you say Dame. that about most of the teams? Like in some you, sense, like Alabama. Let's assume Alabama's got you know eight games they're going to win by probably you know I was going to sure. say triple digits, but no. They're going to have three tough games. Isn't that essentially the norm for most of the top teams? It, it's the norm to some extent. And one thing that I know that we look at on our show a lot is how do those games stack up? Notre Dame actually, despite having three really tough road games, has fairly adequate buffer in between each of those. Great you point. Really, when you really start to worry is when you've got a bunch of them stacking up on top of each other. Alabama's. Oh, you were talking about time buffer. I thought you were referring to the fact that you know they're the favorite by four to six points in each of them. No, no, no. no, I'm talking about. I'm talking about. Is there a murderer's row situation that they're going to have to contend with? And that is much more the case for a team like an Alabama coming out of the SEC West, just the SEC as a whole, than it is for Notre Dame. Thank you. You got the schedule here. It is at Michigan, at Georgia, at Stanford. Those are the three ones. The USC game at home this year, of course. What I've I've put up here are the Massey Peabody numbers. So we'll bring Massey Peabody in periodically. And it's very much like ESPN's FPI. So advanced analytics, we've been posting our numbers for years. We talk about them a lot on the show. They're not gospel, but they're highly correlated with the lines. You get a very reasonable sense of the difficulty of the matchup by looking at our forecasted lines. So for any team, we can throw it up here. I put I put Notre Dame, and I ask about them for a reason because, Eric, in fact, I would argue that this is almost an extreme example of a two-game season because they're such big favorites, 75% and up for 10 of their 12 games. And then they have two games where they're underdogs, slight underdogs to Michigan and big underdogs to Georgia. It really is a two-game season. And this is the kind of thing where – for the non-Notre Dame fans, it, it's a little painful because you never really know if Notre Dame's any good on seasons like this. They run through these schedules. They end up with zero losses or one loss late in the season. Everyone's talking about them, and you don't know whether they're any good because they haven't played anybody. And this, this, Unfortunately, it feels a little bit – I think they're probably stronger this year, but they don't have a schedule to prove it except in these two games. I, I would argue somewhat the opposite. Virginia – is a really good team this year. Mm-hmm. The probability mm-hmm. chart that I'm looking at gives Notre Dame a chance, an 80% chance of winning, but there's a pretty good chance that Virginia is going to win their side of the ACC. Virginia Tech was injury-ridden last year yeah. and had mm-hmm. a ton of injuries to contend with. Yep. Their defense was awful as a result of it. I think they'll be better this year. Okay. Um, so there are teams on the schedule that definitely don't, mean, don't meet that top-line criteria that I think you're looking for as a college football fan. But 
when we tell the story of the 2019 season, uh, I think there will be some success stories on here. Okay. So I've done a little back-of-the-envelope calculations from your data, and it seems to me that it's much more likely that Notre Dame is going to lose one of the gimmies, if you will, than, they're gonna, than they would um, win so or you're, lose. So you're saying 10 games at 75% uh, yeah, it's is way, expected. How many losses expected there? <laughs> you expect two or three. <laughs> so you're talking about – so I, I, if I'm to break this up, you're saying it's a two-game season, but I think it's much more important that they win all yeah. the games that they're supposed to win and, and Ty's pointing out that they've got a couple of uh, ACC Coastal teams. No one's paying attention to ACC Coastal this right. year because Clemson's going to walk away with the Atlantic and presumably But there are the, the good ACC. teams there. But they're, and Virginia, Virginia Tech, they're, they miss Miami. So Miami is the third so, kind of in So that, let me throw that, one out for our experts. If they win all their win games that they're supposed to win and win one of the two against Georgia and Michigan, are they in the running for the, the national championship quad? Prob- probably on the cusp. You're saying a one-loss Notre Dame having beat cusp. either Michigan or Georgia? Depends Especially how they lose. Georgia is the one that they beat, yeah, if right? They, if they lose to, let's say, Georgia 20-19, to 19, they're in, in the conversation. I don't think they're in the Final Four. Wow. Have, have so we, they have to be, basically win every one of their games to know to be there. So. Yeah. Wow. Well, of course, it always ends up depending on who, what other teams have done around the country. And, and so it's hard to say completely, but it'd be a little so who have Who has missed, who from a Power Five or Notre Dame has missed the playoff with only one loss? Was this the TCU Baylor thing? We have to go back that far. Right. So it's pretty rare, I would say. What what usually happens is that late in the year we have a lot of undefeated and one loss teams, and we think this is going to be this big log jam. And then the last few weeks it kind of good thing all out. the good ones play each other in the last couple so, weeks. So to sort am that I, out, am right? I a little bit? Am I a little bit you know, venturing championships in particular? If I process what I'm saying, we're actually got a compl- conflicted opinion here. So Ty is saying no chance, even with a one one loss. You said you're saying historically, you're saying historically one loss power here, power I'll, five I'll conferences make it. I'll reconcile what you're hearing from Ty. He's he's hedging because he's a Notre Dame guy. So he's like, oh, we, I don't want to jinx this guy. Like, okay, like, Virginia, work with me. Virginia I know you're talk. into the numbers. Come on. Come I'm on. coming at it from a different supernatural perspective. I'm just looking for differences of so opinion. I, That's all I can contribute here. So <laughs> what, I want to I want to jump on this schedule strength thing because I think people don't understand the important. They don't. Everyone understands schedule matters, but how much it matters. It really pushes these things around. And if you're going to start talking about who's going to win conferences, who's going to make that Final Four in the in the playoff, you have to look at Who's got a more difficult schedule? So one of the things that we do is one of my favorite ways to look at this season going in is to look at how this is how how we think about schedule strength. Given a team's quality as we anticipate at this point, which is you know the enterprise power rankings or whatever, given that over the past whatever ten years, twelve years, how have teams with that quality performed against an average power five? schedule like of all the power five teams who have had numbers like that what's the expected number of wins essentially and not we, against their current schedule no, against no, the, the av- then we difference it with against their schedule okay. so we're basically asking a team that this this good playing all the schedules that a team that good has played over the last 12 years has won x games we run the sim on their current schedule and get an expected number of wins and then we look at the difference there as a measure of schedule strength so this year's schedule is going to push them up or down relative to what teams of that quality have done in the past so this is the way it breaks down for our top 25 teams this year where let's just go to the top for example <clears throat> alabama is ab- pardon me one second <clears throat> alabama is absurdly high in our numbers now everyone doesn't agree with us on this i mean it's, everyone agrees it's either alabama or clemson a lot of folks are saying clemson number one we have alabama f- a full five points ahead and at plus 32 which is way high for this early in the season 
But they play a much more difficult schedule than Clemson. So even though they're, we would make them right now a four or five point favorite. By the end of the year, we expect them to have the same number of wins because they have a much tougher schedule than Clemson. And you can kind of go down the list like that. Georgia, right now, we'd make a full point favorite over Oklahoma, but they play a, such a tougher schedule that we expect Oklahoma to have the same or a little bit better uh, w- w- number of wins by the end of the year. And you can go on down. Like What's that. interesting about this is um, you obviously see, except for the only team I'm seeing here that's out of the conference, uh, you know, all of these that are their performance is less than the, is, it's Alabama, Georgia, LSU. Yeah. What do they share? Florida? Or, yeah. I mean, you're it's looking at each other. It's the, it's the SEC factor yeah. here that's shifting all of those teams over. Yeah. I'm more intrigued by kind of something like I'm just looking at kind of comparing Michigan and Ohio State, which are very, very well matched on their kind of, you know, their power ranking expected wins yep. historically, what we would historically expect. But Ohio Almost State exactly. has kind of a an edge in terms of, rival you know kind of their schedule i assume that that's only one or two games that's making up that difference right i would assume michigan and ohio state should have a relatively similar schedule well this is one of the things that really plays out is that it's in these in the in the world of divisions they play these unbalanced schedules and so it in this case it's probably that michigan has to play notre dame that's the biggest difference there the non-conference schedule is different but if you go into the and we'll do this in a second if you go in if you want to understand who's going to do better who has the they all play the same division teams they get some home and away differences. Like Michigan has to go to Penn State, for example. What a game yeah. that's! That's one of the biggest games of the year. Super exciting. You should go over. How often do you go to Penn State? Games? Not enough. I mean, it's that tough. Has... We got to do our show on Sunday mornings, but I'd love to go. Oh yeah. I mean, there there have to be exceptions, right? This is going to be a huge game this year, yeah. Michigan and Penn State. But what happens, Shane, is that teams play only a certain number of teams from the other side of the conference. So we're talking about Big Ten East teams. They're going to play three teams each from the Big Ten West. But they play a different set of three teams. Right. And if you end up with the tougher draw, then you have a tougher schedule. And you see some big differences like that. And so, for example, in the Pac-12, there's nobody tough in the South except Utah's looking pretty strong. Washington and Oregon are, big, are the big um, favorites in the conference. Washington has to play Utah. Oregon doesn't have to play Utah. Yeah. That's a big difference in, and don't in we their think conference that, schedule. Don't we think that for the Big, the big Ten that – the fact that Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State are all in there, that in some sense, like, a one-loss team from that, is like, it, it almost gives them an extra boost because you know you have to get out of there. Forget winning the West winner. It's like, you've just like the SEC has a concentrated group of teams, like, if you get out of the SEC even with one loss, you're in. Mm-hmm. I would think the Big Ten is in the same place because of the total strength of Michigan, Penn State, and Ohio State. I, I would agree, especially the Big Ten East. Big Ten and East, It's not Good just like Michigan State's up there as well. Michigan State, in, in a similar case to... Um, you know, our earlier discussion with um, Utah, U- no, not Utah, I'm blanking on the team, but, um, you know, they were injury ridden last year, had so many injuries to contend with. And now they're coming back. They've got a ton of talent coming back from a year ago. And I think you look at them. You've got Michigan. You've got Penn State. You've got Ohio State all in the S- all in the you got me talking Big Ten, now, Big Ten <laughs> East. So certainly to come out of that side of the Big Ten, or at least have a, a pretty good showing in 2019, that bodes well for you moving forward. I think it gives you that boost. Ty, let's stay with with that conference for a while. It's arguably the strongest conference outside of the SEC, and there's this very compelling race at the top. Of course, of course a lot of things could happen, could happen, but the favorites are Michigan and Ohio State. Oddly, kind of even right now. The betting markets in a lot of places very similarly placed. This is in your country, and you know these teams very well. And I've heard you talk about Ohio State with great, you know, with great insight. 
What is your position on Michigan versus Ohio State? Do you think this is the year Michigan finally comes out on I top? I do. I do, actually. Michigan is <laughs> Michigan's in a weird spot because they hired Jim Harbaugh, and he's like the native son coming back to Ann Arbor. But unfortunately, he was 0-4 against this asteroid named Urban Meyer. Mm-hmm. But now he's gone. And if you run the numbers on what happens when a college program, even a legendary program that's really set up well, changes a coach, it's sort of a coin flip. Mm-hmm. Sort of is a coin flip. You don't know where it's going to be two years from now. You don't even know where it's going to be two months from now. Mm-hmm. Ryan Day could be a fabulous coach for Ohio State. He was great in the short stint that he had at the beginning of last year. But we just don't know. They've got turnover at Ohio State as well, a brand-new quarterback who comes in with much regard. But, again, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. I come down on the Michigan side of things knowing that we know what their offense is going to be. We think it's going to be a little bit more wide open now that they brought up a new offensive coordinator from Alabama. The defense has conventionally been pretty strong under Jim Harbaugh. There's just more to kind of rely on there on the Michigan side, whereas on Ohio State side, they've got more talent than any team in the country, you could argue. There's just more variability there, and I think mm-hmm. which direction the season could go. So right now, for me, it's it's Michigan coming out of the Big Ten. Mm-hmm. What do we have any information on how Ohio State is going to react to this new coach? And what I'm really kind of thinking about is has had this new coach. Uh, has there been like one recruiting kind of round with him? Yeah, but it's like, the, the 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 first year. It's hard to put on the new guy because they usually get such a late start. Now he got a little bit of an earlier start because he was interim. But in sure. general, it's hard to judge a new coach by his very first. Class. I mean, I, I would only kind of. Presumably, you could use it a little bit as a judging of, of players' expectations and stuff like that based on their recruiting decisions, right? It's interesting you say that because I do think that's something you can see in that first-year class. But it's just players yeah. these days tend to—a lot of the classes set before even their senior year and certainly by the end of the senior year. There, there's so much momentum for Ryan Day in year one at Ohio State. It's hard to see them failing miserably. That will not happen. One of the things that he is really trying to do and where Ohio State got themselves into trouble a year ago— was with really inconsistent defensive play, which was not something that we would typically see from an Ohio State team with this this much talent. But I think one of his first steps, he knew it going in, was to basically reboot the defense, bring in some new minds to try and run things. I think if they're going to improve, if there's going to be an immediate impact from the new coach, for their sake, it would hopefully be on the defensive side of the ball. So I want to ask uh, all of you, but particularly Ty and, and Cade, a question that I've observed from the, the power rankings that Cade just put up. But So he has got Alabama at about 32, um, approximately, and Clemson is a good chunk lower. And mm-hmm. that's, my, that's, the, that's the anomaly that, that I observed. So here it was, the last game we saw last year, Clemson just pummeled Alabama. Their recruiting classes were both very strong. How is it that you get Alabama so comfortably Good. ahead of Clemson? And, and in your numbers, Cade, in Massey Peabody, and Ty, what do you think? How yeah. does that happen? And is he right or is it should be? I mean, my, my naivete would say Clemson has got to start the season better than Alabama. Yeah, so I think that's, that's, that's a great question. And let's be clear, I think we have it. We have Alabama. I th- that's almost consensus that Clemson is nudging Alabama in, in, many, in many people's polls, including FPI. We love FPI, and FPI has Clemson a couple points higher. So I do think that's interesting. And in general, it's going to come from, one, what parts of the game. The starting place for how we forecast is how good were they last year and, and how good were each of parts of their game. And they, the parts of the game regress to the mean at different rates. And so it, part of it could come. That's a you know, great observation. A passing game may persist more than a yep. pass defense game, for example. 
The next piece in the puzzle is their returning starters or returning production, if you get more detailed. And we break that down into offensive, defensive, and quarterback. And they both look very strong on the quarterback side. But in general, these are important factors, how much of the returning starters come back. And, and offense matters more than defense, for example. A returning starter from offense is worth more in our forecast than returning starter on defense. And then you get a little bump from the recruiting class. It's hard to find, once you've controlled for previous performance and returning starters, it's hard to find much value in the in the recruiting classes because you've got a lot of it in these other places. But as Shane said, we've found that the most recent class provides some kind of signal. It's actually the most important. Once you've controlled for everything else, the most important recruiting class to look at is not the fourth-year guys or the third-year guys. It's actually the most recent class. And it's not because they're going to contribute on the field. It's some kind of signal. The, 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 yeah, exactly. Well, the, their signal, expectations signal. are informative. Yeah. Well, let me ask a natural follow-up question to Adi's question, which is, if the national championship game had been played again, would Massey Peabody have had Alabama still favored in that game? So maybe it's not that much right. an anomaly in the sense that, we agree, Clemson won the game, but that doesn't mean yeah. even Bayesianly updated that they were the stronger team even after that game. Right. I mean, I, what do you think? I, I would still go Clemson. I mean, I, <laughs> so you're going Clemson ahead of Alabama going into the yeah, season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Clemson. I, I would have taken. I, 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 yeah, I am on the Clemson side of this discussion as it relates to 2019, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I suspect one of the reasons why your projections have Clemson a little bit lower is because they're rebooting their defensive line. They got so much production out of those killers up front right. that it, it's tough to just naturally see a way that that's going to compete on the same level mm-hmm. um i that's think they point. will i think they will because they've recruited as strong as anyone in the country but certainly to start the season it would it would stand to reason that they would get less production from their mm-hmm. defensive line so this is an interesting way into a, a question that we always like to ask the non-analytics guests that we have on the show what do you think the analytics community can do to to be better and to inform observers like yourself to inform teams and fans and a, a related question how has your consumption and appreciation of analytics changed over the 12 years or so you've been doing your show? I know you, it's showing up a little bit more often in your show, but how do you think about analytics? What do you think we're missing? And what would you, what would you, like, what would you push us to do to be better? I use them a lot. I use them a lot. I, I log on to your Massey Peabody rankings, which right. you've graciously given me access to mm-hmm. pretty frequently when I'm trying to go through and, and determine how teams, are, how teams are slated on the, on the totem pole in the pecking order. Um, to me, it's meaningful data. As you know, I've I've known Bill Connolly for a long time. Was mm-hmm. now with ESPN, and Bill's done some great work with the S P Plus rankings mm-hmm. that that he puts out. So that combined with the FPI, all these things are very useful data points. Um, I think where where the analytics community could be better is figuring out a really concise way of communicating some of these data points. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is an impressive spreadsheet. And I'm certain you know what everything means. I'm also certain that there are everyday college football fans who couldn't care less about it because it just looks like a bunch of numbers. Well, mm-hmm. this is meaningful data. Mm-hmm. How can we find better ways to communicate this out to the college football public in a manner that it actually is something that they can take with them to the game on Saturday or even if they're watching at home? Mm-hmm. I want to push back a little bit. I mean, his, I think Kate has done a remarkable job of converting it into points. And points is a is the currency. Yeah. Well, and, and by the I way, I don't understand what is he supposed to do. It's come a long way. It's come a long way. It's come a long way. Does he need to convert but, but, it into wins? So, I mean, uh, what? So hold well, on. Or, so let's take that. He's Ty is saying something general about the enterprise, yeah. which I think is yeah. fair. We're always. It's always good for us to. How can we put this 
in the language of the user. So, you know, we've gotten better, but I'm sure we have a long way to go. And it's not just one figure we've seen here. It's like everything we're talking about. We need to get better at putting it in the language of the user. And and I think, you know, I mean, I, I think you guys have done a great job with communicating and display. Like, But even that, like, that schedule comparison that you came up with, with that, which is pretty clear. I mean, there's a lot going on there, right, to try and explain in, like, one paragraph in a newspaper article or to try and explain that in, like, you know, a minute to somebody in an elevator. Well, I mean, I, I think... I just take, think what he's done is amazing. I don't know I, how I much... Think is. Is. I, I agree. Think what he's done is amazing, too. Yeah. But we're all statisticians. Yeah, so. but, I mean, I would hold that up, the previous chart, as a model of best EDA yeah. I've seen in a long time. Well, the one, the one thing I would take some credit for is putting strength of schedule in, in increase or decrease in expected wins. Yes. I think that's, a, that's yes. an example yeah. of putting it in the currency that people can use. So, before we go to break, let's do ask for your assessment of the University of Texas. We talked about your teams. We can talk about my team for a second i had a question for you that i think now i know the answer but let's hear let's hear your take you you know you you started about this texas we're back we're back thing that was sam, sam ellinger, sam said ellinger that, started it at, sam ellinger at, said it he did. I, I take he did. no credit very good um but you know as you say we felt that way I, I was there at the sunday night game against notre dame a few years ago and everybody thought we were back then and we were yeah. so not back then okay here's the thing texas has some colleagues in that tier old school powerhouses who may or may not be back. They're kind of number two in the conference. Are they going to be back this year? So who among the following three do you think is most likely back? back? Texas, Michigan, or Oregon? I would probably go Michigan. Okay. We've heard you talk a little bit about yeah. Michigan. Give us something on Texas and Oregon. Well, Oregon Oregon returns a fair amount of production. They've got arguably the best quarterback in college football, arguably because he's probably not as good as Tua Tungavailoa, or Trevor Lawrence, but he's up there. Could be the first pick in the draft. Mm-hmm. The extent Justin to Herbert, which, you're talking about. Justin Herbert, right. The extent to which Justin Herbert can produce the way many in the NFL think he can, that will determine the course of Oregon's season. On the Texas side, if they could find a running game, I'd feel a lot better about them. They, they're, all the running backs are injured. We can't even run out our... They're all hurt. It's if they incredible. could find a running game, I'd feel a lot the, better the, about the them. The third string running back going into this game, literally the third string, and the only, only the third scholarship running back... Is a is a true freshman quarterback. That is who, that's, right. that's number three on the depth. Look, chart. aren't we just going to find out very quickly? I mean, I'm looking at their schedule right here. Saturday, September seventh. Isn't that next weekend? They're playing this team called LSU. LSU. Aren't we going to we'll find? Quickly. Aren't we going to find out very quickly whether they're back? And then a couple weeks later, they play this team called Oklahoma. Well, one of the great things about the Texas LSU game is that those two teams are both kind of in low second tier playoff contention. And that's going to be kind of a – it's not quite an elimination, elimination game, but it's going to be clarifying. It's a good measuring stick, for mm-hmm. sure, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, guys. That's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball in our special edition, our college football preview edition. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew that we just lost, Audie Weiner, to the classroom. Classes are back. Students are back. we got to do some teaching. Audie's teaching this morning in the next 20 minutes or so. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. Co-host, guest co-host, Ty Hildenbrandt is here. Ty Hildenbrandt of solid verbal fame. 
Always glad to have Ty. He's down here joining us for the college football show, as he has done the last few years. Ty, you can follow Ty on Twitter, at Ty Hildenbrandt, or follow Solid Verbal, at Solid Verbal. He's been doing that with Dan Rubenstein for the last 11 or 12 years. It's a great it's one of the great shows, one of the great podcasts on college football. They're going to do three shows a week, he tells us. He's he's up in the offering. This is awesome. Three shows a week, Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And we're delighted, Ty, always to have you in here. Listen, let's cover a little bit more college football. We've got an open segment for the next half hour. You guys can join us, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can email us, businessradio at com, or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle, at W Money Ball is our handle on Twitter. You can send questions, comments, observations. We are going to make some playoff picks at the end of this half hour. Then we're going to roll into some guest segments. We have Maria Taylor from ESPN. How lucky are we? Maria Taylor from ESPN coming in at the top of the hour. We have Bruce Feldman, possibly my favorite college football writer, coming in for the last half hour of the show. We're going to work up some college football playoff picks. We're going to find out who Ty thinks is going to make the final four but we have some other questions between now and then. By the way, I, here's a question that I claim to know the answer to. I've already kind of given you guys a preview of it. Who's got the toughest strength of schedule this year? Well, toughest? Toughest. You could make a case for South Carolina. That's yeah. one that comes to mind. Yeah. They're probably in the top half of that. Yeah. Um, could I ask you guys I, just a quick question on strength of schedule? Because I was looking at Texas's schedule, which Cade had up on the screen, and compared to Notre Dame, I'm thinking there's at least seven highly competitive games in this schedule. So I understand one way to compute strength of schedule say who's got the least expected wins given their given a, their strength or an average team strength. But what even about just a simple metric? Back to making it easy for people. How many competitive games? does each team have? And we can define a competitive game any way you want, like, you know, probability of .6 or .7. Because to me, I'm staring at Texas' schedule, and there's seven games at which they're not at le- better than a 60% chance. So why don't we just... Is there a way, ex- other than just expected number of wins, we could say how many competitive games? Well, one of the challenges with that is you're going to discount the games that are really not really competitive. Tough. So, right. for example, South Carolina, I'm going to second Ty's nomination of South Carolina. And, and the reason I find it interesting is that everyone's talking about Texas A&M, who is one of the most difficult schedules, who has one of the most difficult schedules. But South Carolina, what people forget is that they have to play – their non-conference schedule is ridiculous. They play North Carolina, who's probably not going to be that tough this year, but decent in their first year under Mac Brown. But most importantly, they play their rivalry game against Clemson across conferences. And, and they're in the SEC East, and so they have to play SEC West. They happen. They're going to get two SEC West teams. Guess who one of them is? Alabama. So they have this brutal we think their schedule their one loss record is gonna be two losses worse than the average team over the last ten years who are as strong as they are. Because we think this is one of the best teams in the country, like a number twenty team in the country. But they're gonna have their schedule is gonna cost them two losses. Um I kind of have a question since we're talking about strength of schedule again. Does the ordering of these games matter? I you know, it, it's tough to say. It may not matter from a statistical perspective, but Certainly, from a a physical perspective, yeah. and, and Bruce Feldman, I'm or sure, a psychological one. Yeah, Bruce, like Bruce, a- Bruce has talked about this uh, a lot. One of the stats that I know he has cited pretty frequently is what happens to teams the week after they play Navy, because Navy has this power option system that they run. They're very physical, not always the best team in the country, but they beat you up. 
And Notre Dame in particular has had some interesting results the week after they play Navy. So <laughs> does it matter, the ordering? Maybe not on paper, but certainly from a Actually, physical perspective, yeah, it wears teams down. Actually, yeah. I, don't, I want to talk about it from a different – because we talked about this last week on the air. What do you think, Ty, happens when a team kind of gets eliminated from the playoffs? Like, let's imagine Michigan takes a bad loss early on. I don't mean to a team they shouldn't lose to. Maybe they lose 40-10 to 10 to Penn State, Ohio State, whoever it is. And, like, with that loss, their realistic chance of making the playoffs is gone. Does that change? To me, that would have a big impact on my belief of their—not that they're not trying— but it changes what they're playing for. I, I think it's more of a fan thing, to okay. be honest. And I think it also comes down to coaching. We've seen it time and again where some coaches who are prime motivators are able to hold the ship together, get a strong finish out of a team. There have been other schools that have been on the far opposite end of that argument. And the whole bottom has fallen out on on the season the second it's over. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking about these these tough games, this is one of the things that we notice about the SEC. Everyone talks about how talented they are. We believe they're an incredibly talented conference, by far the strongest conference, and they have to play each other. So it does get kind of tough. Alabama and Georgia have had pretty much a stranglehold on that conference for the last five or six years now. We have a, a strengthening second tier, LSU and Florida – LSU in the West, Florida in the East. Which of those two teams do you think is most likely to disrupt this stranglehold that Georgia and Bama have had? I would say Florida. I would say Florida. Um, I feel better about the direction of Florida's offense, given they've got Dan Mullen now as their head football coach, than mm-hmm. I do about LSU's chances of mounting a charge on the offensive side of the ball. That's just been that's been a bugaboo for them. It has been for a for, long time for quite now. some time now. They just can't seemingly figure it out. Um, I like Florida if I'm forced to pick between those two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let me give you another set to pick between. We talked about the conference number twos, Oregon, Michigan, Texas. How about the conference number threes? There's an interesting set here. Do you think anybody's going to make some national noise among, let's say, Utah, Iowa State, and your Nittany Lions at Penn State? Wow. That's, that's quite the grouping. Uh, well, I could take each independently quickly. Uh, I like Utah mm-hmm. a lot coming out of the Pac-12 South. I think the Pac-12 North beats itself up, mm. and it could be a situation where Utah is just there waiting in the Pac-12 championship game. Kyle Whittingham has done this thing every year where he's talked about, this is the best defensive line I've ever had. Right. And this year was no different, but there's so much returning talent for Utah that it's, it's hard to look at them and, and not take them seriously. So okay. I'm, I'm pretty bullish on their chances. Penn State, look, I'm a Penn State alum. I love Penn State football. I have no idea which direction the season's going to go. They lost their best player in the history of the program, Trace McSorley. Oh, you give McSorley that that kind he of... He was the winningest quarterback in the history of the program. Wow. That stands for something. Maybe not as good uh, talent-wise as a Saquon Barkley or a LeVar Arrington, but in terms of his impact on the Penn State football program, he's certainly in that conversation. They've got a new starting quarterback and a lot of youth around him. Season could go any which way. I think they'll be really fun on defense. They'll be fun to watch, but... To make an accurate projection at this point is is really tough to do. Real, real quickly, do you think it's one of these situations where they're they're still coming? So, for example, Texas really Texas is a year away. So they 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 might do it. They might do really well this year. But really, if you look at what's happened since Herman's gotten there, they're still kind of they've got a good start starting set, but the depth isn't quite there. Is Penn State on a similar trajectory, or they've they've been pretty good the last few years? But are they still building? I suppose is my question under Franklin. Uh, I wouldn't say they're in building mode now. I think they're more in reloading mode, okay. which is a good place to be mm-hmm. if you're Penn State. 
Penn State has so much talent on the defensive side of the football that they'll be just fine there, where they need to now try and build some consistency and figure out what the next step looks like is a quarterback with Sean Clifford now that McSorley's gone, at running back with Ricky Slade or whichever grouping of running backs they decide to trot out there uh, now that Saquon Barkley's gone. And furthermore, what does their offense look like with Ricky Ronnie running it as opposed to Joe Moorhead, who ran it effectively for a couple seasons Mm -hmm. before he left for Mississippi Mm -hmm. State? Mm -hmm. They're still kind of calibrating their offensive side of things, and it it won't be until they get answers on that front that I think we know exactly the answer to that question. Okay. Do you think we have a—you were talking about Utah before, too. Do you think this is a year where there's some— I don't call it not great team. Like if they were playing in the SEC, I hate to say it, they'd be seven and five or something. But that could be undefeated going into the last week or two of the season. And everyone's saying, well, if they run the table, they're going to make the national championship, despite no one actually believes they're one of the top four teams. <laughs> You're asking for this year's Iowa, right? Exactly. So we, yeah. we had a couple. Well, you years- just said Utah. Maybe Utah beats Washington. I'm looking at their schedule right now. They have the game at Washington. If they win that game, they have no other games that I can see against ranked teams. So they win that. I understand they're at USC, but they win that game. They could be in the Pac-12 championship game, beat them, and then they're done. Yeah, I mean, there, there's always potential for a team like that. It's hard It's hard to look at this and say, all right, this is a team that, that certainly comes to mind. But it is a common occurrence in college football where you get about six or seven weeks in, and someone is sitting there six, seven Eight and zero, oh, and it's like okay, this 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 is a little bit more interesting than we expected. I don't think Utah is that team, though. I do think Utah is legit. Utah's got talent up and down the roster. They bring back a lot on offense. Um, this team may be out there, but it's not going to be them. Are you a guy? Just quickly, are you a guy that prefers having that? Let's imagine Utah runs the table. I'm just interested in your preferences. If you were running the college football playoff system and Utah was sitting there, but you strongly believe, let's I'll make it up. Georgia was a better team, but Georgia didn't win the SEC. Does Georgia go over Utah? Are you a guy that Utah earned it on the field? They're undefeated. I'm just trying to see where you are in this, you know, this debate that goes along every year. I I would be inclined to go with Utah if it were up to me. Yeah. So I I agree with that. And and I also think that the odds of someone out there in the West doing that are a little bit better than they have been before because we've got some teams that are sneaking up or, or you I mean Oregon is kind of back now Utah has gotten stronger every year Washington has stepped back but you've got a few other contenders so if they get breaks and then you've got to drop until you know USC's not strong UCLA's not strong so you've got this chance that maybe one of those teams huh. gets a break and you see them late see, in the season I love season. you as a statistician you're saying someone you're not see yeah. this is the whole point it was Ty's point too you're not saying it's exactly Utah maybe it's Utah but it, it was could Iowa be any of, last year it's yeah, going to be something this it's going to be somebody but, but it is fun to think to speculate yeah. on who that somebody might be and I think if you if you're if you're fishing around for the, one of those somebodies it's not a bad idea to look at those top three out in no the but I think Eric's point or the more general point is the odds are very high for some team to do what we're describing if it's your favorite team it's a much lower probability so this is a bad example because they're on a two-year postseason ban but missouri is going to be pretty good this season and maybe they don't quite fit that mold of a team that's not that good but somehow has a favorable schedule but i'm pretty certain if you pulled up missouri's schedule there's like an 80 percent chance of them starting eight and oh before they get to the real meat of their schedule, 
at which point things could go all sorts of different directions. <laughs> I I really am glad you brought Missouri because I think it's one of the teams that people are really sleeping on this year. They play in the SEC, so it's difficult, of course. But among SEC teams, we have them as the easiest schedule. Yeah, They are literally the only team that's not net negative on strength of schedule. And hey, they're an SEC team, right? That's right. They're at, I mean, you know, they're SEC East, but SEC East is stronger. Moreover, we do think that they are quite underrated in the polls. So this is, if you look at, if you blend the AP and coaches poll and then blend Massey Peabody and FPI to get a sense of quants versus, you know, experts, one of the biggest discrepancies is on Missouri. So we have them 15, FBI has them 20, so let's make that 17 or 18. The AP has them 26. The coaches, how many votes did Missouri get in the coaches poll? They didn't get a single vote. No. We The Quants have them 17 or 18, and they didn't get a single vote in the coaches poll. That's a big discrepancy. And as Ty says, it's not just a strength question. It's a, it's a, it's a strength of schedule question. They've got the easiest schedule in SEC. It's not easy. It's like an average schedule for a Power 5 team. But they are poised to do well. They have Georgia in Week 11. But they could arrive at that game, whatever that is. Eight, no, that could that could happen. Let's talk a little bit more about these quant versus um, experts kind of thing. So the biggest discrepancy in the other direction is, sadly, tragically, the University of Texas. So this is a team that the, <laughs> the models hate this year, especially relative to the polls. The polls have them 10 in both polls. And we have them 19, FBI has them 26. So we're talking about a big difference. And that's the biggest difference we see across the top 25. Other than like UCF, but UCF doesn't count because it's always wrong. So, what is your? What, where are you? Who's who's right? The models or the or the experts on the University of Texas? Uh, I'm closer to ten than I am nineteen. Okay, why? Then what is? The, what are the models getting wrong? Well, it, it's tough to say with Texas because I when I when I look at this team and I did the math on all right, where where do I think they come down? This is a team that really wants to run the football. I mentioned it earlier. Tom Herman, in a lot of his preseason commentary, has talked about, we're a power-running team. We're a power-running team. We're a power-running team. He keeps saying it. One of these days, maybe it'll actually happen. They've <laughs> more, got more rushing attempts than any other team in the Big 12 More rushing last attempts. Year. A lot of that was, was Sam Ellinger, yeah. which they have to try and the remedy so that he's you know in one Survives. piece at the end of the yeah, year. Yeah. But he's a tough kid. They have that quarterback who's a Heisman-level quarterback. He's very good. They just need to figure out a way to assemble the pieces around him. And one of these years... It's going to happen. I think this year we stand a better chance of it happening because it's another year under Tom Herman. I think we will get closer to the quote unquote back state, but it's hard to say. That's why I think there's there's that disparity because see, no one knows for sure. See, I, I, one of the reasons I love you, Ty, is that I know, I know you have a soft spot for the University of Texas. I do. So I appreciate you can I hear do. it a little bit, but the discrepancy between the model and the experts is an interesting one here because Texas is they lost so many. They lost eight of their eleven defensive starters. I think one of the reasons the models get it wrong is that the it's, people don't fully account for the quarterback and quarterback quarterback top quarterbacks in college football can almost carry a team. And it's hard to get that into the models. I think that's where we're going. I, mean, I know Rufus and I will get there in the next year or so. But quarterbacks, we find a returning quarterback is worth more than a returning than, – than the, the, the returning quarterback number is worth more than returning defense and returning offensive starter numbers together. I mean, it's that important. But then we're not doing a good job of differentiating between top quarterbacks and average quarterbacks. No. And I think when you do that in college, it probably makes a big difference. And Texas happens to be blessed with a guy who's played a season and a half worth of starts, and he's performing at like a top five quarterback in the country right now. So let me bring in a statistical question related directly to this. Maybe – 
10 to 20, maybe we're thinking about it the wrong way. Like if I told you someone was ranked first by the data and the coaches were 10, you're like, oh my God, 1 to 10. Maybe 10 to 20 is not that big a spread. Like there's so much uncertainty in the 10 to 20 range that, so I'm just asking you guys a question. Maybe thinking of how many rank order difference places is not a good way to think about it. You're right. 20 could be 10, 10 could be 20. But if you said text, you know, Alabama's voted number 10, that, that would only be nine spaces, but that's a huge difference. Yes, well, you, and that's a, that's a question that one could ask him, answer empirically, right? Right. Well, that's what I'm, that's why I'm asking. Yeah, no, yeah. It's a, it is a, you're, it's a very good point that, that we should look at strength difference in strength numbers not rankings because there's much more spread at the top so move from one to ten is a much bigger move than much move from bigger 10 to 20 now the deal is they're talking about texas in a way that that the quants just don't support it's just a, there is a categorical difference between those two things let me just note before we leave a couple of other differences we the the polls don't like auburn enough according to the quants the quants have them you know bottom of the top 10 10 and 8 the polls have them 16 and i think one of the things that happens is these polls that it sneaks in there like expected wins kind of sneaks in there. It's not just a power ranking thing. They're, they want to put people in those polls at the top. They expect to be there at the top at the end, which is not quite the same enterprise. Right. Yeah. But there's there's like Tennessee. This Tennessee, I was blown away by Tennessee. The 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 quants have them on average something like 20, 20, 22 or so. There's not a single vote for Tennessee in either poll. Not a single one. So we think Tennessee is going to be back. We think, back to your number, Missouri is one of these teams that people are sleeping on. We're with you on thinking they're probably sleeping a little bit on Utah, but Utah's, Utah's uh, that's more of a schedule strength thing than anything. All right, so as we roll into the end of this last segment, let's ask you, Ty, how you expect the playoff to go down. Eric started out by kvetching about how kind of kind of a given the playoff was at this point do you think it's going to be chalky last year was the probably the chalkiest college football year any of us remember certainly in the bowl era what do you think is going to happen this year well as someone who once picked tcu to the playoff and then another year took arizona state to the playoff neither of which actually worked i tend to go a little bit chalkier okay with my selections less well so what do you got this year i'm i'm going to be very boring and i'm going to say clemson I'm going to say Alabama, I'm going to say Oklahoma, and I'm going to say Michigan. Uh, yeah, that's about as boring I as think, it gets. I think, to my earlier point, the Pac-12 beats itself up. Okay. Beats itself up. Utah can't emerge undefeated or maybe with even one loss because of that strength of schedule. Yeah. The North is going to tear itself to smithereens. Someone's going to win the Pac-12, but ultimately it's not going to be enough to get in that playoff. Notre Dame's an interesting case. You brought up the schedule earlier. It really is a two- or, or three-game season. Um, and I you do think not... the Big 12 champion will get in over the second SEC team? I agree. I do, do agree think... with that. No, no. I do. What, you, oh, you put Michigan, but Georgia's in, you said. No, no. No, no. he has no Georgia. Alabama, Alabama, he had Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Oklahoma over Georgia. And Michigan. Yeah. That's why I was asking. Okay, yeah. thanks for yeah. clarifying. That is more interesting. That, is, that Good. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. So um, why is that, though? Oklahoma and Michigan over Georgia. I think it is more likely than not that we'll see an Alabama-Georgia SEC final. And I don't know the extent to which the playoff committee is comfortable putting a rematch scenario in a playoff game. Okay. So it, it always does come down to the committee, right? It does. One, one of the things that I think we've seen from the committee, I think it's fair to say, I've been surprised by it. I think others, some others have. They're more willing to go with pure best team than to play kind of a political angle. They, I thought they would spread things around more geographically for politics. I thought they would play a little bit more who deserves it rather than who who's the best team. They've been a little bit best team oriented. And it raises the following possibility. 
this just jumps out of our simulation. It's shocking to me. What's the probability you put on there being three SEC teams? I would say almost zero. I know. It feels that way, right? Yeah. You would think so because politically it would be a disaster. We're showing this happen. Now, look, we model, we've got five years of modeling the, of the committee, and we do a reasonable job modeling the committee. But now we're talking about something that math- mathematicians say is outside the support. It's never happened before, so it's tough to model. But we show it happening like 15% of the time. It, I was shocked. You run the Sims and you look at it, and like our fifth most common bracket has LSU sneaking in there with Alabama and Georgia. They've got this other team that could make it hard. And here's, I think, the way it happens. If, if the Big 12 beats itself up a little bit, the Pac-12 beats us up, up a little bit, the Big Ten, those guys have to play tougher teams in the West now. And you look around the country and you have a bunch of two-loss teams and somehow the dominoes fall just right. The LSU, Georgia, and Alabama only all have either undefeated or one loss. And they're looking at that. These are three of the top They six would have five. to. It could happen. And we put it at 15%. How much of a meltdown would there be if there were three SEC teams in the final It, it would be on the level of having UCF and or Memphis in the playoff. Yeah, I think it could be. but that's, The rest of the country would go nuts. The re, you know, what I like about it is I think it might force them to actually change things a little bit. That that If that happened, there would be a huge push to have, I don't know, like only conference champs go in, expand to eight, have conference records, something like that, which I think would be a good thing. But one That's why I'm you, rooting you, you for this. Cha- which of those specific changes would be a good thing? Going to eight, and then mm-hmm. and then I think giving conference champs an automatic in, so that the, the the games mean something. It shouldn't just be this this committee decision thing. It should so be five conference champions, and then three wild cards. Maybe a power five, and then yeah. two wild cards. You no, know, kind of, it feels like the default eight. But but what the point here? There's an analytical point here as well. I would not have come up with. A three SEC playoff bracket, if not for the sim. Yeah, and you run the sim, and this is the beauty of this is look. We have twelve games, one hundred and thirty teams. A zillion things could happen. You can't keep track of them all in your head. You run the sim, and it keeps track of it for you. And what you see is LSU sneaking in there, kind of shockingly frequent, which would be you know if you want chaos or you want some kind of yeah. you know drama, that would be a good way to get it. All right. Thank you, Ty Hildebrandt. Ty's going to stick around. We've still got another hour to go. We've got great, great guests coming up. Maria Taylor, Bruce Feldman, in the second half of our college football preview show. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Morton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with a big bunch of the crew. At the moment, we're, we're dwindled down. Shane Jensen, my longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborator, still here. Always here. Always here. And guest co-host Ty Hildenbrandt. Delighted, as always, to have Ty. Thank you for having me again. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Longtime host of the Solid Verbal, great college football podcast, The Solid Verbal. You can follow Ty at Ty Hildenbrandt. On Twitter, you can follow those guys at Solid Verbal. At Solid Verbal, I recommend you follow the listen to those guys three times a week. They're going to be doing three times. They're stepping up from two to three. Other podcasts can do two. Solid Verbal is going to do three times a week this That's right. college football season. You guys can join the conversation. Give us a ring, one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Email us businessradio at siriusxm.com. Businessradio at siriusxm.com. Or hit us up on Twitter at wmoneyball is our handle up there at wmoneyball is the way to reach out to us. Probably the best way. Send us a question, complaint, observation, whatever you got. 
Ty, we're rolling into week one. Are you ready for the season? What If you just look across the entire landscape, what is the storyline or what is a storyline that you're most interested in following this year? I am – so within the context of week one, I'll say the storyline that is most interesting to me is the Oregon-Auburn game. Mm-hmm. I think that will be an effective measuring stick on a number of different fronts. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm excited as a fan, as someone who does a podcast – to see how that game shakes out. So tell us about the the measuring stick part of that game. Well, Auburn's got a new quarterback. They just announced that a, a freshman, Bo Nix, is going to be their starting right, quarterback. Right, right, And Auburn, as you know, hasn't really been able to run the ball that effectively the last couple of years, which is weird because they used to be so good at it. Mm-hmm. There's still a an embarrassment of riches along their defensive line, and they're very good defensively. Maybe not at linebacker, but everywhere else, pretty good. Mm-hmm. So the question remains, which direction does Auburn go now? Because Gus Malzahn seemingly is always on the hot seat. Someone mm-hmm. always wants to get rid of him at Auburn. I mean, I mean literally, it's, it's, it's surprising that he's still there. I mean, people have been talking about it for it's, the last three years. He like must have so much repressed anger at this point, <laughs> right. constantly being in that situation. So Auburn is a very interesting case on a number of different levels. We talked earlier about how... The, the, the quants and the experts and the coaches maybe aren't sure where to put Auburn. I, I kind of fall into that category as well. Mm-hmm. And then on the Oregon side of things, they've got this all-world everything quarterback in Justin Herbert, who's going to be one of the top picks in the NFL draft, provided he doesn't get hurt or something catastrophic happens. Uh, Oregon is a program that has rebuilt itself now under Mario Cristobal. It looks a lot different than it did under Chip Kelly. And last year... So, by the way, tell us what that means. Like, in what in what way is Mario Cristobal putting his stamp on that? It, it's more of a physical team now than I think it was under under Chip Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the most obvious example. Uh, they just play a little bit of a different style than they used to, and, and what people might be used to seeing under in, in the old Chip Kelly regime. So, um, you know, how does Herbert elevate that Oregon team? Can Oregon establish some level of consistency under him with their defense? Um, than they haven't had the last couple seasons. Mm-hmm. This will be a good way to find out against an Auburn team that's really good. Well, it has big implications nationally because, you know, the Pac-12 is not highly thought of, especially compared to the SEC. And this is one of the few chances they're going to have to prove otherwise. And we learned last year that if that if the leading team in the Pac-12 goes out and drops the SEC game early on, it kind of it, it rationalizes the rest of the nation dismissing them for the rest of the year. So even if Washington had continued undefeated and they didn't, they would have never made up for the fact that they dropped that game to Auburn. So we're a little worried that Oregon would face the same thing, right, if if they don't do this again. This is the one big chance to prove that the Pac-12 can stand yep. up. And this is supposed to be one of the best one or two teams out of the Pac-12 playing what most would say is, you know, the fifth or sixth best SEC team. And so it looks bad if they're not able to do it. They're going to be Auburn, I believe, is a favorite in that game. So the game three and is a half in, points. Yeah, it's in Dallas, so it's ostensibly neutral. But obviously, Dallas is a little bit closer to Alabama than it is to Oregon. We'll see how well Oregon travels for that. But you've just mentioned one of the biggest factors. I mean, we we talk about the importance of quarterback play in college football, and you're talking about the one of the I don't know four best quarterbacks, consensus top four quarterback in college football, possibly the number one drafted because Trevor Lawrence is not coming out this year. That's correct. Um, but he may go before Tua and Justin Herbert against a true freshman. His first start does mean eighteen year old kid makes his first start in Jerry World in the biggest game of Week One. That has to be huge advantage, Oregon, right? I'm picking Oregon. I'm picking Oregon for that very reason, mm-hmm. and for many of the 
reasons that I defined earlier around Auburn, uh, some of the uncertainty. Uh, I just have to go Oregon. Mm-hmm. It would be stupid to not go Oregon mm-hmm. in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, Auburn has surprised before, and Auburn still plays with a ton of fight in games like this. We saw it last year against Washington, right? Um, but I, I think I feel a little bit better about about Oregon on, on that mm-hmm. side of things, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look across the country, if you just stack up the teams in each of the Power Five conferences, you get a some sense of who's stronger, who's weaker. So I've got a, I've got a figure here that just puts the Massey Peabody rankings. You take You rank each conference, but then you stack those rankings next to each other. And it's a little humbling, and this feels like a growing trend. We've been talking about the SEC for a while. They obviously get most of the press. They got you know most of ESPN's attention. But if you start looking at the power rankings, there's a big discrepancy. I mean, you stack, for example, this, we're talking about Pac-12 versus, versus SEC. The top of the Pac-12, we have preseason at like plus 15 or so. And our numbers mean how would we expect that team to do against an average team on a neutral field? So the top teams, Oregon, Utah, about plus 15. How would that stack up if they were in the SEC? Well, I would put them, it looks like, you know, like seventh or so. They're about, yeah, they're about equal to Mississippi State and Missouri. Humbling is a very good word. And I think to further put it in context, your rankings here, if I'm reading this correctly, has Michigan and Ohio State a notch below Texas A&M. Well, they're just right at Texas. Yeah, they're, they're right, right at but Texas they're close. A&M. And the fact that they're that close, I think, is meaningful. Yeah, I agree. So what we're saying is these 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 powerhouses in the Midwest, Michigan, Ohio State, no bigger names in football. We all think they're contenders for for the college football playoff. If they were in the SEC, we would be talking about them in the same way we're talking about. We mentioned before who among the second tier is going to challenge Alabama and Georgia. Who between and we named LSU and Florida. Well. That's where we would slot Michigan and Ohio State if they're in the SEC. They're that far behind. According to the power rankings, ours, but not just ours, FBI would say something similar. They are basically second-tier SEC, which is very good, by the way, very good. But it's a little bit humbling to see them side-by-side like that. Crazy, yeah. And, I mean, the other humble, the thing that stands out to me, and this perhaps is the one most in line with what everybody knows anyway, but does is Clemson is like two touchdowns more than – the next highest team in the, yeah, AS, in ACC? the ACC. Yeah. Is this, there any chance that it's not Clemson at the end in that conference? We put it at like 85%, and most yeah. people would probably say it's more like 95 Yeah. We, we just bake more noise into our models than others. But no, I mean, look, the gap there is absurd. Well, let's just take it through. So Clemson is the one team in the country that is kind of in that Alabama-Georgia tier. I mean, many people have them above Alabama. But the next teams, who do we have? They're kind of hard to read there, but we have North Carolina State. Miami is in that next team group. Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech. I'm assuming Florida State. Uh, Florida State, Virginia. So that's that's what the next – there's like a set of four teams or so. But those teams are like plus eight, where Clemson is plus 27. So it's more than two touchdowns. That's almost three touchdown favorite between Clemson and the next guys in the ACC. So it's it's a it's pretty ugly – and, you know, Eric's did this thing early on about, you know, the, the, the playoff seems foretold, and so I'm kind of bored with the season already. And Ty says, no, 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 that's two teams or three teams, but we still have 127 other teams. I think it's fun to look around and find other races and other, other rivalries that might be worth paying attention. So, for example, I, you know, we haven't cared about the ACC Coast in a long time, but it's an interesting race. We've got Miami with Manny Diaz coming back. Um, coming back as head coach this year. They played a very competitive game against Florida. And then you've got Virginia, which is resurgent program 
under their coach over the last few years. And then we have Virginia Tech, who's an interesting situation as well after turning over their head coach a couple of years ago. So Miami, Virginia, Virginia Tech presents an interesting coastal race. It's, you know, that's those teams care about those things. They'll play competitive games on Saturdays. If you want to look around the, the landscape and look for something other than Alabama Clemson to pay attention to, that's an example. So real quickly, Ty, who do you like in that ACC coastal? If we're going to pay attention there, who are your chips on? Right now I go Virginia. Over Miami. I go Virginia over okay. Miami. Okay. Yeah, like their quarterback situation, Miami's quarterback situation, still a bit in flux as they named a freshman to be their starter. Uh, I like Bryce Perkins an awful lot for the Hoos, yeah. Okay. So another division that looks similar and I think is probably the most fun division to look at this year. I want to get your take on that real quick, and then we're going to jump to a guest. The Big Ten West. I know we've talked a lot about Big Ten East. That's where the big names are. The last couple of years, the Big Ten West has been a laughing stock. The Wisconsin's just had a cakewalk to their Big Ten championships. But finally, Wisconsin's back. back they've, they've slipped, and Nebraska's coming on. Minnesota's coming on. Northwestern surprised people last year. Iowa's kind of always there. This is, I don't even think it's arguably. I think this is objectively the they're most. They're ranked co- almost as good as Kentucky and Tennessee. Well, there's a bunch of them there together, which is what makes it kind of fun. And so I'm curious, between you know, kind of the obvious contenders there, Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, Northwestern, Wisconsin, who do you like out of the Big Ten West? It's a demolition derby. You're right. It's crazy. That's I, a good choice of words. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I probably come down on the Iowa side of the fence because I like their quarterback situation a lot. You're, you're detecting a trend here, mm-hmm. I'm guessing, with the quarterbacks. But a reasonable well, way to go. We've, we've learned time and time again it's actually a pretty important position. It's, it's yeah. not a bad stance, yeah. but I, I would probably come down on the on the Iowa side of the fence. Uh, I would love to come down on the Nebraska side of the fence, but I'm not confident enough in their defense. I think if they get to that level, it will be because of defense and not because of some of the exciting pieces they have on the offense. Does it side. not bother anybody that, as I just pointed out, that you guys, that Massey Peabody has Nebraska, <laughs> Iowa, etc., as the 12th best team in the SEC? Well, the good news is that... That's, we talked a lot about that. This is the way they stack up conference to conference is... Just I mean, that of, one's a shocking thing that the whole Big Ten West is I mean, in the context like, of national college football, sure. But in the context of the Big Ten West, those teams, it's a it's a demolition derby, and it's going to be a ton of fun to watch to see who emerges. So, by the way, our numbers like Minnesota, and this is something that is fun because it, it gives you an off-the-top-tier storyline to follow. Massey Peabody has Minnesota 31%. To win the West, with Iowa coming in next at twenty third, at twenty three, and, and Nebraska right there at twenty, it's going to be a fun race to look at. One of the advantages Minnesota has is the schedule; they have one of the easier schedules in that division. They have an easy draw, easier draw for the teams from the East. Um, but tell you what, to find out more about Minnesota, I think we have an expert on the ground in Minnesota right now. So we're going to go to one of our guests for the last hour of the show. Bruce Feldman is joining us. Bruce, good morning to you. Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Bruce is a longtime college football writer. He's worked for pretty much all the outlets currently with The Athletic. He also is with Fox Sports. He not only writes, but he covers college football as a reporter, as part of the team um, during the television broadcast from Fox Sports. He also is the co-host of um, with, with Stuart Mandel of um, at the, the Audible. The, yeah. <laughs> why did I slip on that? It's only my favorite friggin' football uh, podcast Bruce and Stu do shows all year round, just like Dan and Ty do, and it's one of the great football podcasts to follow. Bruce, where you, you're calling in from from Minnesota? Yes, I am. Yeah, I got here yesterday. Uh, our crew has two games this week, uh, and the first one is 
Thursday night with uh, FCS Powerhouse South Dakota State playing uh, playing the Gophers and Jack Roberts Gophers on Thursday. Well, it's a it's a it's a fun it's a fun opening game. Any game would be fun because we've been without it for so long. But Minnesota is a team that wasn't relevant, hasn't been relevant for a few, for a while. They've got this storied past, but they haven't been relevant for a while. But then PJ Flex seems to be injecting some life into that program. What have you learned since you've been on the ground there, and what are your expectations for that team this year? You know, a lot of people look at this Big Ten West and saying everybody, including Illinois, should be improved. And when you look at how Minnesota finished the year, uh, PJ Flex, it took him a little bit of time to get Western Michigan cranked up, but when he did, you know, the Broncos were going and. There's a lot of people around here feel the same way about this Gopher team. There's not necessarily one marquee guy. Uh, you know, they have three terrific running backs. They have a massive offensive line. They have a really good wideout in Tyler Johnson. I mean, it's it's a really interesting team just because I think they're a lot bigger and a lot more physical than most people realize. And when you look at the West, I think a lot of people see what Scott Frost and certainly with Adrian Martinez and, and feel like Nebraska is the trendy pick out of there. But people around the league feel like Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin took a step back last year, and now all of a sudden there's opportunity. Maybe it's Minnesota's time to, to jump mm-hmm. into that window. Mm-hmm. Bruce, what makes P.J. Fleck such a successful coach? I mean, obviously he hasn't done it quite on the big stage, but expectations for him are high. You know coaches very well. You stay in touch with guys and you follow guys for years. What do you think it is that makes Fleck special? Well, I think he has an identity that he gives a program an identity, and you see it. And some of it, people look at it and go, "Okay, that's kind of hokey and whatnot." But a lot of the players buying in, and I think there's an energy there. And so I think we'd start with that. One of the things that I think they did a really good job in last season, in season, he made he's made some tough decisions on you know making some big staff moves, and he promoted. Joe Rossi mid-season uh, basically take over from a guy who Rob Smith who was really a mentor to, to Joe Rossi and one thing that I think mm-hmm. that they did last year was they simplified things and you said hey let's just play a lot faster and and let's let's settle this thing down and the players responded well to it mm-hmm. so I think I think PJ Fly has you know he's a for, he was a he's relatively young he was a former school teacher who was a good player himself, and I think he really has a good feel for what resonates with his team. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you, how, if I was a Minnesota fan, I would be worried about them getting too fast, too good, because someone's going to scoop up Fleck. Do you think he's one of these guys that might stick around for a little while, like we've seen at Purdue, for example? Or do you think he's going to get going to get poached? And the bigger question is, like, how good can Minnesota get? What's the what's the ceiling for this program in the in the near to middle future? I mean, the first part of that is, you know, it's a good problem if you're Minnesota because, look, right now, the way you look at the hot seat for 2019, I would say there's probably two big jobs that are on the horizon. One is USC, and another one is Auburn. And if he's getting back to those kinds of jobs, you know, then he must have just led you to the, the Big Ten title game in a top 15 season. Right. Right, um, and then it's you know it's up to the school how well they sell him, how comfortable he and his wife are here. Um, it's obviously a beautiful part of the country, and the West is a favorably you know, more manageable to be in the West than if you're in the Big Ten East, where you know, you've right. got these traditional powerhouse programs sitting atop, and you have to navigate around them. I mean, K 
can can Minnesota do what Wisconsin has done in the last decade? I mean, Wisconsin had so last year back to back top ten seasons. Um, I don't think there's any reason to think that they couldn't do what Wisconsin can do. It's just a matter because they've been pretty good at times. I mean, if you look at what they had under Jerry Kill, they were pretty good. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, his health issues ultimately, uh, you know, forced to, you know, contributed to a change there. And I think the Fleck shift here is has been interesting to see how much they can build off of this and build off the momentum they had at the end of last year. Mm-hmm. Well, Wisconsin's a nice a nice ceiling. If they are able to do that for a while, that's been kind of the premier program in the West and one of the premier programs in, in the Big Ten for a while now. That's a great thing to, to be able to shoot for. Another coaching story that we've heard some from you during the offseason, it seems like an important story on the national stage, is Josh Gaddis going in as the offensive coordinator at Michigan. Harbaugh making some, you know, some long-needed changes, according to Wolverine fans, for a while. What is your take on whether Michigan can get past Ohio State this year? It's been a barrier for them for a while, but obviously with new new coaching situation in Ohio State, we've got a very interesting situation in the Big Ten East. The betting markets have those teams as basically dead even on which is going to come out of there. Gaddis is an important part of the story. How do you feel that's going to play out? Well, I think it was a really, really bold move by Jim Harbaugh. So he takes Josh Gaddis, who had never been a offense coordinator or a play caller before. And not only does he make the move to, to hire him, but also is like, he never, I did a big story on this on, on the athletic, uh, probably about six weeks ago. He never even interviewed Josh Gaddis, but he trusted the people who had done all the Intel. Wow. Uh, on him. And look, I, you know, in my story on, on the website, we talked to so many people who have worked with Josh Gaddis. And a lot of people I called, I didn't know how they felt about Gaddis. You know, it was a, it was a guy who was basically his first boss, another guy who was a, uh, a played for Josh Gaddis as a, with the Josh Gaddis's first full-time job as a position coach back at Western Michigan, uh, or it was Joe Moorhead, who is really one of the one of the godfathers of really the RPO game, and mm-hmm. it got Penn State going. And everybody raves about Josh Gaddis. And I think what he brings to Michigan, and this is critical, I think, because Don Brown has had some really good defenses there, but I feel like it has been so defense-heavy that you know, once the defense wasn't great at times, and it wasn't great against Ohio State, and it certainly wasn't great against Florida, um, it was almost like the, the team kind of just kind of just melted down because it was like, hey, if we can't win with defense – we don't have enough on offense to get mm, it done. And I think right. what Josh Gaddis has really instilled much of this RPO game is a confidence and an edge to them that really has been lacking on that side of the ball. And from talking to a lot of people inside the program, they feel like there's been a quite a transformation that has taken place this offseason with Gaddis bringing that edge there. Mm-hmm. Look, he's got to do it. But if there was ever a time to get Ohio State, um, you know, you'd think with Urban Meyer moving on and we'll transition to, to Ryan Day. Dwayne Haskins has moved on now. I mean, like the people have filled in. First, Ryan Day is really highly regarded and did a nice job last year in the interim. And Justin Fields is super talented. Uh, and he's the guy who's taken over that offense. But Michigan, Gattis has a lot of pieces to work with. He has arguably the best offensive line in the Big Ten hmm. coming back. And they have really experienced receivers and Shea Patterson's played a lot as quarterback and there's still talent on defense, although they got to replace, you know, a handful of really good players. 
I think this is this is a good opportunity for for Gaddis and certainly Harbaugh because not only Ohio State but their three toughest opponents have to come to Ann Arbor this year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about new systems and new and new coaches and in some cases new players like with Fields. What weight do you put, Bruce, as you look around in college football? What weight do you put on longevity and sustained systems and sustained players versus injecting something new? So one of the things I'm thinking about is over in USC bringing in a new offense. Even if that's a good move, how much can we expect from it? How quickly? Yeah, look, I, I mean, just I haven't seen USC practice a week ago. They have. Graham Harrell has outstanding receivers he's inherited over there. And JT Daniels is talented, the starting quarterback. Now their offensive line is a is definitely shaky and it's been shaky for a while. I think they will be much better. The the big problem for USC is much better maybe eight and four, maybe nine and three. Oh, wow. That's okay. not going to save Clay Helton's job because first of all, Clay Helton's boss, the A D Linsworn, his job is serious jeopardy at USC. And second, uh, I think it's going to be a hard selling point for the power brokers at USC to see Clay Holton go nine and three and say, okay, that gives, we're sold. We're going to, we're going to stay the course for 2020 with this. Wow. Because recruiting has tailed off so much because it's hard for recruits to feel like Clay Holton is going to be the guy here a long term. So what are we buying into? Mm -hmm. And I think it's affected ticket sales as well and they just renovated the you know the coliseum 315 million dollars into that renovation i i think it's there's a lot of business decisions that are tied into what they what happens in usc and, mm-hmm. and even if like i said even if the air raid is successful i think it's got to be wildly successful to the point that this is a playoff team for them to to get people to really believe that clay Hilton should have this job okay so they they also have the challenge. It hasn't been much of a challenge lately, but in in, the, in over time it has been of being crosstown rivals with UCLA. You're sitting there in LA. You know both programs very well. They've been they've been down a little while, but Chip Kelly's got some talent. We all know he has some talent. If you had to say which team would have the better season this year, which LA team would have the better season this year? Which way would you go? Uh, I mean, look, USC has is further along in terms of they are with older players and probably has has more depth and I think they'll win more games I think UCLA will have perception-wise the much better season I mean I spent a day over there a few days ago and they are a very big long physical team now they there's a couple of parts on the on the depth chart where they're thin they don't have they probably have six or seven offensive linemen they feel pretty good about they don't have a ton of linebackers um you know, the quarterback is really young, Dorian Thompson Robinson, not just young, but hasn't even, you know, he was only a one-year quarterback at Bishop Gorman High School in Vegas before he got there. He played some last year. But when you look at, I mean, they got a bunch of tight ends who are huge, and, and they're going to do a lot with them. They have a really interesting offensive system. I expect them to be as improved as any team in the country with the possible exception they give Nebraska. Wow. Because when you look at uh, UCLA has as tough a non-conference schedule as anybody in college yeah. football. They go on the road Thursday night to a Cincinnati team that won 11 games. Yeah. Then they have you know, a, you know, a really, really solid uh, San Diego State team that's won a ton of games the last few years. And then Oklahoma comes in there. So 
that's there's no cupcake games. But I think this is a really interesting team. And I, like I said, I think that they got better as the year went on. We mm-hmm. had them, our crew had them when they ran all over USC at the Rose Bowl. I, I think they're going to be an interesting team to people mm-hmm. to watch. And I think a lot of people forgot, I think, how, how just how smart it coach Chip Kelly is. Mm-hmm. One of the knocks on Kelly as a college football coach is his recruiting. And, and, and he hasn't done, I don't think he's done super well with the recruiting classes, but people... I mean, it's maybe it's too easy a criticism. A lot of folks lay this criticism into him that he's not interested. That he's not going to do it. Now he's got great chops as an X's and O's guy. You've got to recruit in college to put competitive teams on the field long term. Do you think that's a fair criticism of him? And if you had to make a bet long term on whether he's going to be able to do it there, given that supposed proclivity, what what do you think? You know, I think that's that's kind of uh, that's kind of miscast. I mean, look, Mike Leach just won 11 games, the most they'd ever won in, at Washington State. Mm-hmm. And they were, Mike Leach wasn't having top 40 recruiting classes. Mm-hmm. You know, I think sometimes the recruiting rankings, uh, I think it's, and look, there's, I put some credibility in the star system, but I think a lot of times where you, you look at what Jim Mora had recruited in the last three or four years, a lot of those four- and five-star guys, probably shouldn't have been four- and five-side guys. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think they may have looked the part, but the only one in the last, like, you know, maybe three years who actually lived up to the hype was Darnay Holmes. You look at some of these other, I mean, they had a, a, the number one recruit in the country a couple of times, and one of those kids was really talented, but you're not sure how important football was to him. The other kid never did, he came Warriors, never did anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just, I think it's a very... A uh, complicated process, you know. And look, one of the things I know from talking to the UCLA guys is Chip Kelly puts a big premium on, you know, how much of these these guys love football and what, you know, where's the accountability to them. And sometimes that part gets lost in the evaluation mm-hmm. of the star system, where it's like, hey, what did this guy do at a camp or a combine? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so I think there's a little bit of a disconnect there. I mean, there's plenty of programs that are really good, you know, whether it's a TCU or a Utah, or certainly, as I mentioned, Washington State, right. where they don't have the recruiting services, the online recruiting services, um, don't really think much of them come signing day. Mm-hmm. And they over out, you know, do that. And I just think because they know what their system is and they recruit to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking to Bruce Feldman. Bruce is National College Football Insider for The Athletic. Great, great platform for sports writing and especially college football. The Athletic, he also covers on TV for Fox. He'll be covering the Minnesota-South Dakota State game Thursday. You'll see Bruce throughout the college football season. He also has a great college football podcast called Solid Verbal with Stuart Mandel. You mentioned that Oklahoma is going to go into UCLA. That's going to be a fun a fun game to watch. Oklahoma is an interesting story. A lot of people like them to make, to make the playoff. A lot of people see them coming out of the Big 12. They he, Lincoln Riley has managed to turn two transfer quarterbacks into Heisman Trophy winners and first round, first, not even first round, number one draft picks. And here comes Jalen Hurts. I think it's a very interesting story in college football this year to see what Jalen Hurts ha- does at Oklahoma, whether Lincoln Riley can do it again with this guy. This I mean, It takes a pretty nuanced understanding of Hurts' game to try to project this thing. 
Because the knock on Hertz supposedly was that he was good with his first reads, but after that it was a little bit questionable. Is that fair? And is that something you think can be, if it's if it's true, is that something that can be coached up? What's your expectation for what Hertz does and what, as a, as a result, the OU team does this year? I think he's going to have a big season. I mean, look, some people forget he was the SEC player of the year as a true freshman. And he's, he's a very talented. I think some of that, which you alluded to, yes, it can be coached up with more reps and, and kind of what they're doing. I think some some kids just pick it up easier than others do. And, look, that's I mean, that's that's a criticism or a challenge for a lot of guys is how well do they see it. And it's really hard for people to gauge unless they're actually in the games. Now, from talking to people on the old Alabama staff, they said he got a lot better at that last year and a little bit he did play, you know, when he was working with Danny Nose and Mike Loxley last year. But I, I think what's going to be a challenge for him, and I think he's going to have a really good season, but A, um, unlike the two previous transfers, they had more of an incubation time where they had to sit out the year and they were right. around it. They had more timing with the receivers, more timing to be in the system yep. just to get up to speed. Uh, two, and the second point of this is, they have to replace four of the five offensive linemen on what was a really good offensive line. Mm-hmm. And I think look, Bill Biedenbaugh is one of, the, one of the best position coaches in the country, the guy, the old line guy there. But that's a challenge. And then I think the third thing, which is, which is kind of a more nuanced challenge, is he's following two guys who put up record-setting years, both, I think, more accomplished passers than what Jalen comes in there as. And so the expectations are going to be ridiculously high to say, oh, those guys won Heisman. This is what you know people expect you to do. And I think it's going to be really hard to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a terrifically high standard, but they've got, they've got a system there, and they've got a coach that people just think the world of. It's going to be really interesting to see how those two things come together this year. Bruce, we always, we, we've asked you this in the past, and we always like to ask this for our non-quantitative, non-analytics guests. You, what, what can we do better as a community? You, you increasingly have access to numbers. You, know, you, you have them when you write your pieces. You have them when you talk to teams. You have them when you do your show. What are you seeing from analytics that's helpful? What is not helpful? How do you think we could be better? What are we missing right now as a community when it comes to college football analytics? I think some of the stuff is where it could be better, I think, is the understanding that this isn't, you know, and I'm not saying that you feel so. This isn't baseball where, or at the NBA, where there's a massive sample size and it, there's not wide, wide gaps between uh, the competition you play. In, in college football, the competition that, let's say, Florida plays over the course of the year and the schemes they face and whatnot is just very, very different than the way it works in baseball or in basketball. It's just different. So I think for people to get kind of a little bit too twisted up in absolutes, I think it's a really can be a helpful metric, but I think you have to take it and keep it in perspective because, you know, when I see, and I'm talking about like, you know, being in a, an offensive staff meeting that I'm sitting in on having access to, mm-hmm. you know, they will, they will look at where you know, defenses are, what they like to do and, you know, third and short, third and medium and whatnot. But there are kinds of things where people kind of get out of, you know, can and can do a few things, maybe in a blowout where they can just break tendencies. So on paper, it doesn't look it doesn't mm. look as such. Mm-hmm. And I think I think if you can find a way 
to if people can find a way to do a better job of not just looking at a play-by-play or, or the hard numbers and qualify it a little better and just you know have some of that maybe it's anecdotal evidence I think that informs the the audience so much more mm-hmm. than rather just the cold numbers and look I mean I think we've come a long way in 10 years and I think there are certain metrics that I think are are you know it's a little bit like I guess you know what you know when I was growing up probably when you were growing up you'd see a, a, a hitter come to the plate there would be three categories, and those were the only three categories that you were conditioned to think mattered: batting average, home runs, RBI. Right, right, right. And I think that there's there is now more of a uh, flexibility in the football world about what matters. I mean, why do TFLs matter so much, and how does it go from okay, this is why this matters, this is what this stat is, but here's how it's relevant. Mm-hmm. And I think the key part is. How is it relevant to each team? And I think you have to know a little bit about, you know, maybe more relevant, you know, to let's say how Gary Patterson coaches at TCU than it might be to how somebody else, you know, runs a defense because mm-hmm. of just the way they, the way they attack somebody. Mm-hmm. That's that's great, Bruce. I think that all sounds like it makes a lot of sense. It's a good challenge for us, and it's a it's a good thing for us to push on as we move forward. Listen, just the last minute or two we have for you. I think of you as someone who's such so in touch with the coaching community, and we're also kind of in the market for non-Alabama Clemson stories. So off, you know, below that tier around college football, what what coach do you think we might be talking about more at the end of the year than we are right now? Who's like the next Matt Campbell that everybody's going to be enamored of and talking about as the most impressive guy? So who's someone we should be, whose program we should be watching and think might emerge over the, this season? Over the year, I mean, one of the guys I would say put on your radar, and again, I don't think they're going to have a great year this year because he just took over, is Neil Brown at West Virginia. I think people, the more they find out about what kind of teacher and developer of people he is, I mean, he had a really nice run at Troy. I think he is one of the smartest people who's working in college football right Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Now, look, I don't think they're going to be very good this year, the situation he inherited, but he's somebody, if he's not on, on the radar he really, really should be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about Nebraska. I think what's happening there, Adrian Martinez, quarterback, I think he's going to be such a breakout star this year. Uh, they weren't very good last year, but they got better as the year went on. I think there's somebody that, um, you know, people should really keep an eye mm-hmm. on. As mm-hmm. far as, like, the other wave of guys, guys who are not head coaches yet, I would say, for people to watch, but one of the guys who already is a head coach who I think is a really, really smart, uh, smart offensive mind is Mike Norvell at Memphis. Uh-huh. He is a guy I think the longer he stays there, the more fortunate that program is that mm-hmm. he's still there. Mm-hmm. He does a very, very good job. And I think that, um, you know, there's a handful of guys in the, in the, in the AAC and that's been kind of a launch pad. Right. A lot of these guys have been plucked out already. But he's one who's still there, and I think he's really good. Also, keep an eye on uh, Lance Leipold at at Buffalo. He won big at a Division three school in Wisconsin, where won national title after national title. He's done a really nice job at Buffalo. And what's interesting to me is they lost their starting quarterback who left early for the NFL, and their best two receivers, one will transfer to Miami to grad transfer, another one moved on to the NFL. I'm curious to see what he does, because he just finds a way to make things work, and I think 
under the radar. He does a terrific job at a place that is really hard to win. Right. Terrific. That's a bunch of great tips. Much appreciated, Bruce. Listen, I know you're busy, and you're, you've got your first weekend of football, which is a double thing for you. Appreciate you taking the time to step away and, and talk with us. Always delighted to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bruce Feldman calling in from Minnesota, where he's covering the Minnesota-South Dakota State game tomorrow. Bruce is a college football writer for The Athletic. He's also a college football reporter for Fox Sports. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Cade Master hosting this morning with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Audi Weiner is in the classroom right now as we speak. Some combination of us are here. Shane, Eric, Audi, and me every Wednesday morning. We're hosted this morning also by Ty Hildenbrandt. Ty, down from Allentown or Bethlehem. I always forget which one it is. Close enough. Close enough. One of one of those areas. Uh, and uh, Ty's here, of course, because he's hosting uh, where he's helping host the college football preview show. We're down to just the last 15, 20 minutes before we roll into our last questions. I just want to underscore. We asked Bruce Feldman, our guest in the last half hour. We asked Bruce to name some coaches that we should be paying attention to. Bruce is very in touch with the coaching community in the interest of finding non Clemson and Alabama related stories for the 2019 season. He named some coaches he's impressed with and expects to continue to make a name for themselves. He's a big fan of Matt Campbell. I said, uh, like Matt Campbell. He said, Neil Brown at West Virginia coming over from Troy. He's in his first year. West Virginia's going to have a tough time this year, but Neil Brown, he has high expectations for. He mentioned Scott Frost at Nebraska, of course. Mike Norvell at Memphis. Memphis is one of only five teams in the NCAA who are favored in every game this year. It's this interesting feature. You know, you might expect that from Clemson and Alabama. You see it in Michigan, actually. But at Memphis, Memphis is going to be uh, competing for that that uh, group of five slot in the uh, in the bowl picture. An interesting addition, Lance Leipold, or Leipold. Lance Leipold, Lance Leipold of University of Buffalo. He had some real nice things to say about him. So, Got some extra programs for you to pay attention to as you follow the 2019 season. So I want to refute everything I said when I opened up that I thought it would be the big three. Because I, I, I forgot about a game I watched last year that changed my whole impression. Was I wrong to think, and it relates also to what Bruce was talking about, that Jalen Hurts bailed out Alabama last year? Georgia was going to beat Alabama in that game. Jake Fromm threw all over them. He's still on Georgia, right? He's not going anywhere. Isn't he a junior? So why I'm actually going to pick, I'm going to say right now, I'm picking Georgia to win, to beat Alabama. Georgia was the better team last year. They were the better team. I still am upset to this day that Georgia didn't win that game because I thought they were the better team. Am I totally nuts thinking Georgia has a decent shot to beat Alabama? No. You're not nuts. I, Georgia is an incredible program. And, you know, so often we talk about Clemson and Alabama, especially this year, these two meteors headed for each other. But Georgia's kind of on that next rung down. They're, they're very much modeling their program in the same fashion as Nick Saban did at Alabama. Kirby Smart comes over from Alabama. He's trying to build the program in, in a very similar way. And they're getting to the point from a recruiting standpoint where they're about four deep at every position, which is, again, just this war chest of riches on the recruiting side of things. So it does stand to reason that this is a coach who knows a lot about Nick Saban, knows a lot about how Alabama runs its system. He's in a pretty good position, probably better than most, not just from the coaching side and the strategic element of this, but also on the on the talent side to maybe mount a serious charge and, and, and knock him off in an SEC championship. And you've talked a lot about quarterbacks. 
who do you like better, Jake Fromm or Tua Tuolagliola? <laughs> Tunga Vailoa. Tunga Vailoa. Who there do you like tag, better between the two? Well, they're different. It's hard to say. They're, they're very different quarterbacks. Tua is much more inclined to take off and run with his legs. Uh, last season, we saw him uh, in more of a, a, a wide open system than I think we're going to see at Georgia this season. They're just different players. Jake Fromm burst onto the scene a couple years ago against Notre Dame. And that was the beginning of the path for him, where he was just incredibly efficient. We do remember efficient. the Jake from 300 yards, three touchdowns, no picks, two under 50% completion, yeah. one touchdown, and two picks <laughs> against Georgia, right? So, they're, they're, yeah, exactly. I mean, they're just they're very different quarterbacks. Jake Fromm is, I think, a little bit more efficient. And Tua Tungvaluwa, a little bit more based on what he can do with his legs in the system. Uh, I'm still inclined to go Tua, personally, but it's, it's, a, it's a tough argument. It's hard to say. Ty, in the Heisman Trophy race, the two biggest favorites by far, money favorites, are Tua and Trevor. Trevor Lawrence of uh, Clemson. Do you have a position on that one? I know you guys like to denigrate the Heisman a little bit. You are co-creators of the Heisman ceremonies, which is great fun. But in the quarterback, all the favorites, like the top six or seven, are all quarterbacks. But the two above everyone else is Tua and Trevor. If you had to put money on one for a Heisman, which way you go? I, I worship at the altar of Trevor Lawrence. Really? Tell us about mm. that. Uh, I just think he's a generational talent. I, I really like Tua. I think Tua is going to do very well in the NFL. He's going to be picked very highly. Uh, but Trevor Lawrence, the way he burst onto the scene last year, the way he played in the second half of last season, the poise that he showed in two very high-level playoff games against Notre Dame and then against Alabama— beats Notre Dame by 27 and then Alabama by 28, that's not something that you can teach, Mm -hmm. right? And the ease with which he did it, the the poise I think he he showed under pressure was remarkable. Mm -hmm. So it it is not common to see that level of aptitude by a true freshman. Acknowledging that it's not common and he's a generational talent, do you have like a historic, like could you, what, what would be your nearest historical kind of comparison for him? Oh my gosh, I mean you might have to go back to Peyton Manning. Mm Mm-hmm. You might have to go back to a to a guy who and Peyton Manning didn't have that level of success in college. No, you know, no, I mean, definitely. it wasn't until after he left that Tennessee won a national championship. But uh, I, I kind of view him in the same vein as as a Peyton Manning, um, certainly in the same vein as like an Andrew Luck, maybe sore subject at this point. But in terms of guys that we know, we're, we're watching them in college. We know that they're going to be special when they get them to the next level. I, I think he kind of fits that. And mode. I remember watching that game, both those games, Ty, and thinking, not only is this guy playing unbelievably well for a freshman, but he actually even left some throws on the field. Like I'm thinking this guy can get even better. And there was nothing I watched in that game to suggest that, we're, that we've even seen the best of him yet. And, no, and, and to your point, I don't think we have. He had a very young receiving core from last season. They're all back. They're all back this year. And that's bad news for, I know we looked at the chart earlier of the ACC. That's bad news for ACC competition. It's bad news for the rest of college football. you got to figure out how to cover these guys. If you can't get the Trevor Lawrence, if you can't take him out of rhythm, you got to figure out a way to cover these big, tall, wide receivers who, who run like deer down the field. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how you do both. And that's, that's the dilemma with trying to beat Clemson. How does, some, how does another program step up and compete with these programs that are that are concentrating talent in the way they are it seems like it's much more concentrated now than it used to be maybe that's the national media maybe it's easier to follow kids because of technology but you know clemson had a bit of a history but not that much and they managed to rebuild the rest of us are kind of waiting for saban to retire you know george is coming but how do you how do you compete with these programs even in your neck of the woods how does penn state build to that level how does michigan ohio state build to quite that level ohio state's got the talent but they seem to. Well, we'll find out whether they needed Urban Meyer to do it. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the $64 million question, right? I mean, every team in the SEC has been trying to answer that. That's why they've all gotten rid of their coach in the span that yeah. Nick Saban's been at Alabama. I think we're seeing it on the Clemson side now. He He's kind of instilled this culture that players buy into very quickly. It's seen as more of a fun version of Alabama, right. if you will. Uh, but ultimately, what, what knocks them down from that pedestal may be a coaching change. Maybe they lose a defensive coordinator and some of the chemistry is upset there. It hasn't bothered Nick Saban. He's been able to navigate that pretty effectively. Remarkably. But if it happens on the Clemson side, maybe that brings them down a rung and allows some others to compete. Georgia is trying to build themselves much in the same way as Alabama right now. He's had a lot of success because that's a very talent-rich part of the country. How do you do it elsewhere? You're wise to bring up Ohio State. Ohio State right now, if you look at something that, that I know we mentioned on our show, the blue chip ratio. Mm-hmm. What ratio of players are considered blue chip coming into that program? Ohio State's number one right now. Mm-hmm. They've got the talent. How do you achieve that level of consistency, I guess, is what the next step is. It's crazy to be splitting hairs talking about this in, in terms of Ohio State because they've been so good for so long. But right. to truly get to that next rung, I guess that's what you have to do. Let me extend Kate's question to one level deeper, which would be, do you take a different strategy? Like, you can't out-defense Alabama, so you've got to be a great offensive team to beat them. Is there any credibility in an argument like that? In other words, why play to Alabama's strength, which is hard-nosed defense, running the football, develop a strong passing game, offensive team, beat them 40-38, to 38, and that's the way we're going to beat them? Well, I mean, there's a big difference between beating Alabama and then being Alabama, right? Ole Miss, for a couple of years, yeah, could do it. <laughs> they, they could beat him. They had a mobile quarterback who played with an edge. They had big, tall wideouts. They ran a wide-open system where they would spread That's this defense. Right. And they had a lot of success. Even Texas A&M back in the day with Johnny Manziel, Johnny he, they found ways to— to, to try and serve as that counterbalance on a one-game basis one game. to Alabama. Yeah, and, and, That's and, what I, mean, I was asking you. Is that the yeah. right strategy? No, and I mean, like, I'll just I'll just kind of caution against building up an entire program around one opponent, right? I mean, yeah. y- you can design yeah. things to good. sort of be optimal for Alabama that may leave you wanting in a lot of other games. Good, good. All right, guys. The We don't need to talk about football in the abstract anymore because this is week one and we've got a full slate of games. So let's talk about what we're looking at. Let's get your takes on the games, especially from Ty. We're, of course, sitting here as a reminder with Ty Hildenbrandt, longtime host of Solid Verbal. We brought him in because he actually knows something about all these teams. <laughs> so let's talk about what we're going to look at. We have games Thursday night, Friday night, and then a full slate Saturday and then, a, and then on into Sunday night as well. And probably Monday, Labor Day, right? Yeah. So we got five days worth of football Thursday night, UCLA at Cincinnati. Cincy is a favorite there. They're not the big name, but they're the favorite. Two and a half points. If you were a betting man, Ty Hildenberg. I am a betting man. I'm going to go <laughs> Cincinnati in that game. Is that right? Cincinnati, I think, is ahead of schedule with Luke Fickle. They were really good on defense a year ago. They've got a young core with Desmond Ritter, their quarterback, and Michael Warren, their running back. So I, mm-hmm. I expect big things from the Bearcats. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to keep on moving because we've got some we want to talk about on Saturday. But I can't go past Purdue, and it's becoming an annual event the Rondale Moore game <laughs> so Rondale Moore bur- burst on the scene as a true freshman in Purdue's game last year against Northwestern was it I think they ended up losing that game but it was like 300 plus yards of total offense if you want to see an exciting guy you want to watch Friday night Rondale Moore will be a true sophomore they're at Nevada favored by 10 and a half do you like Purdue that much I do and I'm not sure why because I don't know what to expect from Purdue this year mm-hmm. each of Jeff Brom's first two years at Purdue have posed different questions. On one hand, it was offense. Then the next season, it was defense. This year, it's sort of all of it, but they do have Rondale Moore, and Jeff Brom's a really good coach who was sought after by not just Louisville. 
I, I believe in what he can do. I'm just, I, I don't know if I can find a way to verbalize why. Good. Well, it's another reason to watch the Big Ten West. This is the there most interesting division in football. We didn't even talk about Purdue, and they have one of the most exciting players and one of the best coaches in the entire NCAA. Moving on to Saturday, here's a fun one. We talked about Memphis and Memphis having it going on down there. They're hosting a big SEC team. Not only SEC, SEC West. They're hosting Ole Miss, and guess who the favorite is? Hometown Memphis Tigers. Five and a half favorite against Ole Miss. What do you think, Ty? Oh, man. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Five and a half, you said? Yeah. I'll just lay the points. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't have a strong lean on this one, but um, so much uncertainty. I'm just going to go with a favorite. <laughs> well, you know, Feldman said Mike Norvell. Believe in Mike yeah. Norvell. So let's go with Feldman's advice there and, yeah, and, I mean, and I'm, lay I'm, the points. I'm, I'm, I'm high on Memphis in general. I'm, okay. I'm pretty high on Memphis in general. I just... I always have difficulty putting my finger on Ole Miss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, no kidding. They've been a dicey program for a yeah. little while now. How about the ACC? They blessed us with some conference games week one. Mostly yes. we don't see conference games. ACC gives us some. Virginia Tech is going up to you know deep college football country in Boston. Huge. Um, and, they're, and they're laying four and a half against Boston College. Do you believe in Virginia Tech that much? Virginia Tech is my lock of the week. I'm all in on Virginia Tech this year. I think Virginia Tech... Um, was uh, the unfortunate victim of so many injuries last year that just decimated their defense. They had some issues at quarterback with their quarterback getting hurt very early. Now they've got some continuity with Ryan Willis taking the reins again at quarterback. I think Boston College could be really bad this season, and this to me feels like a game that Vegas got wrong. Mm. Which which usually means they got it right and I'm in the wrong, but I, I'm pretty high here on, on Virginia Tech. All right, let's stay in that conference. Let's stay in that division. Let's stay in that state. UVA is also traveling. They're traveling to Pittsburgh. They're giving two and a half to the Panthers. I, I like UVA a lot, yeah. too. I, I also think Pitt could be really bad. Okay. And um, I'm pretty high, as you heard earlier, on Bryce Perkins yeah. and what Good. Bronco Mendenhall's built yeah, in Charlottesville. Men- Mendenhall's really doing it down there. We wondered whether he could do it from not being at, at BYU, and he's, he seems to be. So there you go. Ty gives you two locks of Virginia teams in conference games week one. That'll be fun to watch, both on the road. Um, how about USC hosting Fresno State and giving 13.5 points? That's an it's interesting a lot. one. It's a lot of points. Fresno's got a new quarterback this year, and they lost their offensive coordinator. Tell us quickly. Give us the sell on Fresno State because they're a very legitimate Group of Five team, right? Very might have been the best Group of Five team all last year, um, at least down the stretch. This is a team that's coached by Jeff Tedford, formerly of Cal's, oh. been all over the place, but um, lost their offensive coordinator to Indiana, which I don't like. Now they've got a new starting quarterback. Tedford has been very good with quarterbacks in the past. 13 feels like a lot to me. I, I don't know. I, 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 I want to go USC, but my head's telling me take the points yeah, and go good. Fresno. Graham Harrell got a new system, but it's a new system. This is yeah. week one of the new system. Two last games as we run out the clock here. Boise State at Florida State. Four and a half, four and a half point line. The, the Seminoles are favored. Uh, I'm going to go Boise plus the points in that game. It feels like a home game for Florida State because it's in the state of Florida. They played in Jacksonville. Uh, but so much uncertainty about Florida State and which direction that offense heads. If they can get any push with their offensive line, they can run the football. I like their chances more. But with all the uncertainty, I'm going to take the five. All right. Last one. I know where you are on this, but just for the record, Oregon getting three and a half against Auburn in Dallas. I like Oregon. I like Oregon. Give me the Ducks. That's the high-profile game of the weekend. A bunch of good games week one. That's the highest profile. Saturday night, 7 o'clock. 
Oregon-Auburn going to say something about whether the Pac-12 is going to be in the national conversation for the year. That, gentlemen, has been our college football preview show for 2019. Many, many thanks to all the team that put in work here, especially to Todd Hildenbrandt, who drove down here and joined us for the last two hours. Eric Bradlow for Shane Jensen, for Audie Weiner, for Matty Datz, keeping the keeping us on the straight and narrow. Very much appreciate all the work. We will be back next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>